everyone, and welcome back to Urban Wilderness, a podcast about my journey as a city-born novice to learn as much as I can about wilderness survival techniques and bushcraft. Back in January, I started summarizing and reviewing the survival techniques in a Netflix original called Daybreak. I also scouted out the nature of nuclear explosions. It's all part of a series I'm calling High School Apocalypse. Part 1 reviewed episodes 1 to 3, and Part 2 was episodes 4 to 7. Part 3 will cover episodes 8 to 10, which is the remainder of the first and only season. Daybreak has put an interesting spin on the genre by having undead that don't infect those they bite and a post-apocalyptic world where all of the survivors are children and teenagers. I'll start this finale with the backstory that does the best job of explaining the bombs. It's a breaking news story shown in Josh's pre-war condo, which has the title, Talks Break Down at Chaco Summit. First and foremost, when peace talks occur, they are done in a neutral country, one not involved in the hostilities. Also, if you pause, the missile being fired in the news footage has a red star on it. I'm inclined to believe Josh when he says he wasn't paying attention to the cause of the end of the world. The only way we'll ever get answers to that is if there's a second season. The show yanks me forward into my recurring theme by giving us a detailed flashback of Josh hunting in the woods with his dad. It's adorable, browning gear, a log cabin style tree blind, and a location header that says somewhere in Canada. (laughs) Aw, how cute. It proves to be a reservoir of experience that Josh has been able to draw from to survive in a post-apocalyptic world. In the second flashback, his dad states his philosophy of elk hunting. You have to know your prey. Hunting elk is all about disguise. You have to make them believe you're part of their herd. Josh then states that he researched why they never saw elk on their hunting trips, despite the elder's claim of shooting a six-pointer. The elk migration patterns have changed over the years because of global warming. Aw, he did some research. Isn't he just the perfect little protagonist? Maybe, maybe not. Daybreak has a very interesting cast. I've failed to find anything relevant about the survival techniques of Wesley until the tail end of the season. He's kind of just the king of exposition. He does adopt a samurai persona and a dual katana fighting style. Like archery, it's a quiet weapon, and unlike the former, it requires no ammo. The dilemma is that it's a melee weapon, and when your enemies tend to swarm, it's not a fighting style that suits everyone. However, Wesley is a football player, so it could work for him. There's a massive ghoulie battle during the finale, but it's a lot happening at once, and if Wesley is showing off his skills at this point, he was overshadowed. He does pleasantly surprise the audience with his first aid skills. He transports his boyfriend to Josh's old condo, the one stockpiled with supplies. Here he utilizes boiling water for sterilization, gauze and compresses for wounds, and the best part is that Wesley is vigilant about changing dressing regularly. It's a nice break from the fast-paced main plot while still offering very valuable background information. (laughs) He really is the king of exposition. We're soon privy to more details about the bombs when Baron Triumph resurfaces as the old principal of the high school. I'm still going to refer to him as the Baron, though. He executes a one-man coup and takes over the school, and it's a very easy boon. 
I was disappointed. I understand that these kids are anxious to have an adult in charge after six months of adolescent power struggles, but they don't ask themselves the most important question. Well, maybe they do, but they don't ask it often or loudly enough. How is he not a ghoulie? The Baron is able to deliver an answer. Biochemical nuclear war. He remained human because the school contained a fallout shelter in which he hid for months alone. The only entrance is adjacent to his office. With his situation more or less explained, he now presses for answers about why only kids survived. He handpicks a research group, which proves to be smaller than ideal, but very effective. Many kids are able to confirm that some kids did melt in the initial blast after all. It's suggested by the Baron that all the survivors have in common is the HPV vaccine. He states that it only works on kids because adults are too old to receive the inoculation. I've just unloaded a whole ton of series summary up until now, so let's pause to actually ask a question. What is biochemical nuclear war? Biological warfare uses biological toxins and infectious agents as an act of war. In case you're curious, the most deadly biological weapon is anthrax, a type of spore. My next question pertains to nuclear bombs. When I was doing research on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I found it daunting that an explosion and heat blast that intense didn't level every single structure. Some buildings in those cities remain standing to this day. I guess it depends on their composition. So my question is this. Can you release a nuclear blast and a biological weapon at the same time? To my knowledge, it's never been done. I'll give you a little refresher from episode 9. Nuclear bombs have an explosion with a strength ranging between 700 and 5,000 tons of TNT and a blast of heat so powerful it rivals the interior of the sun. That's 100 million degrees Celsius. I'm going to say that's a firm no to both being deployed at exactly the same time. The biological toxin or infectious agent would be fried in the blast radius. Now, I'm all for science fiction. Being turned to goo or becoming undead is all good in the realm of fiction. But if I have any listeners out there who are interested in the reality of nuclear blasts, I'm going to offer you something called the Nuke Map Simulator. I'll post the link for the site on Twitter. It truly covers all the bases in a way that keeps scientific reason at its core values. For example, if the bomb detonates on the ground, it's a ground burst. If it detonates before it hits the ground, it's an airburst. Both explosions cause different types of devastating results, but this is just one of the many variables you can experiment with on NukeMap Simulator. The Great Missile at the Prison is the last subject I'd like to talk about in this episode. Here at the end of the first season, the plot gets very character-heavy as the accumulating flashbacks all build to an apex. Almost every character is taking a turn being the main character of an episode. Those with the privilege of a decision are faced with either to stay and disarm the bomb or to flee to a minimum safe distance before it detonates. Angelica is selected by the Baron to detonate the missile, and we see her get started by opening the main missile panel with a grinder. It's hilariously spark-heavy work They're for someone working on an actual rocket. It's made even funnier by her later chastising Wesley for smoking near it. The tablet handed to her for armament lays out general instructions in Chinese. 
Let's have a round of applause for KJ and to think she started out as a prison guard in this very same building. Now I say Chinese because it's what the characters and the Netflix subtitles have been saying up until this point, but in this last episode, while reading the tablet, KJ states that it's in Mandarin. She reads the general description of the biological agent made in Russia, but Josh is quick to interject and point out that we don't know who did what. The general consensus is that it was the adults, plain and simple. <laughs> so naturally, they need Crumble, an adult, to disarm the bomb. Remember that Crumble was also a biology teacher. As she reads the missile details translated from Mandarin, she determines the biological agent is a plasmid. What is a plasmid? A plasmid is a small, circular piece of DNA naturally found in many types of bacteria. Sometimes referred to as vectors, constructs, or clones, plasmids can replicate independently from the bacterial genome and often encode genes that give bacteria specific traits. That's the textbook definition. But they can also be found in life forms with much more complex DNA. Crumble identifies the specific plasmid as one that transmits DNA and resequences genes. The plasmid, in combination with the radiation from the nuclear bomb, is what made the ghoulies. Finally, we have answers! The conclusion to the first season is Crumble detonating the missile in the part of the Earth's atmosphere called the mesosphere, to result in something I mentioned previously, an airburst. Boom! Roll credits on season one. I hope you enjoyed my summary and review of Daybreak. There are a few things I left out just because of time restraints and general flow of my theme. So the use of maggots to clean infected wounds on Josh's hand and Wesley's boyfriend's face. Josh being fluent in American Sign Language and using it to communicate with an Amazon leader when she lost her interpreter. Ghoulies being both sensitive to and drawn to loud noises. Not allergies in the apocalypse. The parasites that inhabit both Baron Triumph and Miss Crumble, we see the Barons protruding from his abdomen when he dies. And that's it. Ten episodes compacted into a comprehensive summary of three episodes. If you want to talk about anything I discuss or bring up something interesting that I glossed over, you can find me on Instagram at Urban Wilderness Podcast or on Twitter at Urban Wild Pod. Now, this first part of the series is over, but I'll have one more episode where I talk about the last podcast left. So be sure to follow Urban Wilderness on Google Podcasts and Spotify. I'll finish here with a Daybreak-themed sign-off. Don't go with the flow. Be the flow. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening.